Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Actung, Actung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Hollands, and I'm now, well, I'm in, um, I'm in the mountains, I'm in the sort of central mountains, the Abruzzi Mountains, I've left the plain of Foggia behind and we're now really properly in the hills and, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Tuscany really, it's, it's got these sort of very sharp, steep, low hills and then much bigger hills beyond and I'm looking now down to, I think it's the River Biferno, um, but since the war it's turned into a reservoir and they've obviously built a dam and it's now a little lake and behind that is Monte Miano and today I'm very much on the trail of the Hasty Peas, the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment, part of the first um, the Canadian 1st Infantry Brigade, part of the Canadian 1st Infantry Division. And they've come across in the toe of um, of Italy into Reggio and Calabria, um, Catanzara, where I was a few days ago, down in the bottom there, right in the bottom. And they've moved all this way up to here, up into the plain of Foggia and then up into the mountains. And by this time, it's October. And it's just a really tough slog for these guys and and the thing that's really struck me is just the the distance i mean it's felt like a massive distance for me in the last two and a half days um but you know you imagine doing that on roads which are mainly you know hardly any of them are asphalted they're all kind of what we would call strada bianca kind of dirt roads gravel roads in those old trucks and and whatnot and and you just start to realize why it takes so long and the problem is, is by the time you've got off the plane, you're now in kind of German territory. This is where the enemy are. And you just don't know which towns are going to be occupied by the Germans and which aren't. And you don't know when you go around a corner. I and mean, I'm just looking at a mountain. I'm, you know, I'm on a mountain road now and I'm looking at a kind of sharp turn. Um, ab- above me on the top of the hills is a, is a little village called Sant'Elia. And you don't know whether you go round that corner of that road, there's going to be a German roadblock, you know, with machine guns and mortars about to train 
train down on you uh, or not. And it's a gorgeous sunny day, but um, here, but back in 79 years ago, almost for the day, I should say, um, it was absolutely horrible weather. You know, pouring with rain, miserable, and just an incredibly tough place to fight. And the Hasty Peas, they're going off the ridge that I'm looking at now, the really high ridge of Monte Miano, climbing down up to up to Machia. And it's an absolute classic example of that, because um, two men, two sort of, you know, scouts from a patrol that Farley Mowat um, has sent forward actually get into Machia, this little hilltop town, and they're promptly taken prisoner. But it gets dark and they manage to escape and scrabble their way back down again. And by the time the Canadians turn up in some kind of force, the Germans have retreated. But, you know, incredibly difficult. And at some one point, Farley Moat finds a, um, the body of a dead Hermann Goering man and um, sees a, uh, uh, some notes on it and finds some notes on it and they get translated and it warns that... You know, in a letter that the German has written, he says, God, you know, this is very easy country to defend and going to be very difficult for the Allies to fight their way through this. And, you know, they've just got up to exactly where I'm standing now. And he says, Farley Moet says, the prophecy contained in the dead paratrooper's letter became a harsh reality as winter drew on. Our approach to Campo Basso, capital of the central Apennine region, and the city from which we were supposed to debouch northwestward down the mountain slopes to Rome, slowed to a crawl in the face of increasingly tough enemy opposition, rugged terrain, and steadily worsening weather. Veritably, we were reduced to chewing our way inch by inch. Well, I mean, you know, as I say, it's a sunny day today, but I'm just completely understanding why this would be such tough, difficult place through which to fight. And actually, I'm looking at a track now, and this is the kind of road that they're going up and having to use i mean the road i'm on now is beautifully tarmacked but not back in the day anyway that's my first stop on my farley Mowat hasty peas pilgrimage but there's plenty more to come today well i've been driving along a kind of long ridge line about 700 meters up and overlooking campo bosso which is the kind of, sort of largest town in the Molise area of Italy. I mean, crikey, you ever heard of Molise? I mean, it's not, it's certainly not Tuscany, possibly one of the least visited parts of Italy, I should think, by tourists. I haven't seen many Brits around here. Um, but it's very, very beautiful, I have to say. Um, and again, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, a lot of the Apennine country. Some very steep-sided hills, Agriculture still going on on the highest bit, sort of ploughed up fields, lots of those sort of caterpillars, hard at work, even on a Sunday, which it is today. Little windy roads and Strada Bianca, you know, these old dirt tracks. Lots of little clusters of wood as well, um, oaks and um, plenty of umbrella pines as well. And I'm standing right now in an olive grove um, where I've just come pulled off the road. Um, and you can see Campo Basso. 
It's sort of on a low saddle, and beyond it is this rise, this very sort of dramatic sort of domed rise, which I guess is probably about sort of six to ten miles south of Campo Basso, called Ferrazzano. And the hasty Pisa um, don't have to go and take it. That's given to the um, the Highlanders who take Ferrazzano. But when they get to Ferrazzano, they discover that the Germans have already left. They've moved up northwards into, into Campo Basso, which is the largest town around. It's, I mean, even today, it's about 50,000 uh, people there who live in this town. Um, but at Ferrazzano, um, having been captured by the Highlanders, the hasty peas then have to go and take it. And Farley Mowat is um, leading a platoon alongside um, Jerry Swell. And Jerry Swell is a new platoon commander who's just arrived. Um, he's bespectacled, looks rather learned, um, and is um, keen to impress. And they get up into Ferrazzano, and um, Farley Mowat is rather nonchalant and sort of wandering down the street and not really kind of paying much attention. And... Jerry Swale is being much more cautious and he's got a Tommy gun and he's sort of, you know, looking at every single door of the main, on the main street. And Farley Moat thinks he's all being a bit ridiculous. And then suddenly there's a kind of grind of gears and a, and the sound of an engine being, being gunned and a German vehicle suddenly hurtles out of a street and fires. And, and from the, from the, from the vehicle, the German troops actually open fire. And one of them, whacks Moat in the back and he falls aside thinking god you know this is this is my end and meanwhile um Jerry Swell opens fire with his men and they kill the Germans in the car and it crashes into a wall and that's that that's the end of them and he hurries over to Moat and says you know you all right and he goes well I think I've been hit but they can't find anything. And then they realise when he takes off his pack off his back that actually the bullet has gone into a uh, into a tin of bully beef and and it's that that has um saved his life but obviously the force of it has has knocked him over so he's completely all right once again his luck has held and Mert's quite interesting about it he says the whole incident had happened much too fast for me to feel fear and the exhilaration of still being alive was such that the touch of the angel's wing seemed almost trivial almost a thing to laugh about not many days later i was to think of it quite differently We'll be moving on to that story in a minute. But first of all, I'm going to a town called Ripali Masani. Ripali Masani, um, which was captured by Farley Mowat. Well, I'm now at Ripali Masani and um, distant bells going on. And there it is perched on the side of a, of a overlooking a valley sort of hills on the other side. It's all pretty close country, lots of trees around. And there's the church tower sort of sticking up proud above the rest of the village, which is a sort of, you know, all piggledy-biggledy botched together very closely. And um, basically what happens is, is the Germans, the Hermann Goering Division, move out of Campo Basso on the 14th of October, 1943. And so after that, um, they're kind of told to kind of get rid of the any pockets of German resistance on the southern side of the Biferno River. So this is the first big river they've got to cross. And um, Lord Tweedsmuir is back. He's in charge of the Hasty Peas again. 
uh, and he tells Abel Company to go and take a little village called Montegano. The carrier platoon is going to occupy um, San Stefano, a hamlet which is just to the kind of northwest of Campo Basso. Um, and then he tells, orders Farley Mowat to take a jeep and go and patrol Rapala Masani, which is, you know, a mile or so from San Stefano. And Abel Company get some quite stiff resistance at uh, Montegano. And Mowat actually has an absolute breeze. He goes straight into, uh, into, into Rapala Masani with bells from the church pealing and all the, uh, all the inhabitants come out and treat them like liberators. And the mayor comes out to meet him, and he's a, a returned emigre who from, who's um, spent some years in Chicago, who speaks English and escorts them into him and um, his Batman, a chap called Doc McDonald, into the town hall, where they kind of ply him with booze. And... Um, it turns out that the Germans have only literally, a platoon of Germans have literally moved out only an hour before he's arrived there. So yet again, Farley Mower has been incredibly lucky. And it's funny because, you know, I'm standing here below the village, just looking up at it. It's just straight in front of me here, a sort of olive grove. Um, and I can just imagine him turning up this road, which is the road I'm on now, in his Jeep with Dot McDonald. And you can imagine all the people coming out into the village and greeting them as liberators and so on. There's a rather exotic church tower. It's, 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 it's got a sort of dome on it, on, on little pillars right at the top. And it's brightly coloured, yellow and green diamonds and yellow and green stripes. It's rather unusual. Um, but very picturesque, it has to be said. And this is where it was. This is where it happened. I mean, God, it's absolutely back out of nowhere. And I, I tell you what, I just, I cannot get over the kind of the distances and, and how difficult it must be fighting through this terrain in the rain. And, and, you know, again, it's a gorgeous day today, but it wasn't in October 1943. And it must have been so hard. And, and they've barely begun. You know, they've got the Biferno, then they've got the Sangro, then they've got the Moro. Oh, it just goes on and on. And the thing is, these battles for eight, the 8th Army were undertaking, including the Canadians, of course, in this part, this sort of latter end of 1943, they're kind of forgotten from the narrative. And yet such bitter fighting around here. It's amazing, really. Well, we've just been travelling along the Biferno Valley, um, which sort of cuts a bit of a swathe through this landscape. So we've been, we climbed down from Rapala Nasani and down into the Biferno Valley, which runs sort of roughly kind of east-west. And it's a decent river, you know, it's probably 30, 40 feet wide, um, pretty fast flowing, very wooded in the valley down below as well. So um, the Germans are basically retreating back across the Biferno. Um, and Lord Tweedsmuir has sent the hasty peas up to clear these three villages. So Rapala Nasani was one of them. Um, uh, of Santa Stefano was another, and Abel Company was getting a third one, uh, Magnano. And Farley Moat got away with it at Rapala Nasani. Um, but the other two, although they were on the southern side of the Buferno, they were defended. And Jerry Swale, the bespectacled, um, carrier platoon commander who had saved uh, Farley Mowat's life 
um, at Ferrazzano was leading the, uh, the, the Caripatoon up to Santa Stefano, which is a tiny little village, you know, on a, on a crag on the hills, just overlooking the Beferno Valley, was approaching the village when suddenly they ran straight into a kind of, you know, machine gun ambush and were cut to shreds. And the lead, um, the lead carrier, everyone was killed or wounded. Um, and frankly, the ones who were killed outright were the lucky ones because the people following behind, they, they had to kind of struggle back into a ditch either side of the road and, and they were pinned down by the Germans. They just couldn't get to them. So those who were wounded were left out on the road, um, you know, and, and died of blood loss. You know, all of them killed, including Jerry Swale. And it wasn't for a further five days that the hasty peas were able to go and rescue them and get the bodies. And they'd all bloated by that time. And Farley Mowat was helping with the burial party and had to go and pick up all these bloated bodies, which didn't look like humans at all. And it was, you know, he said it was absolutely obscene. And then someone handed him Jerry Swale's broken spectacles and he says, for the first time since the real war began for me, my eyes filled with tears. For the first time, I truly understood that the dead were dead. And a couple of days later, he wrote a letter home and he wrote, it's hard for guys my age to grasp that nobody lives forever. Dying is just a word until you find out differently. That's trite, but horribly true. The first few times you almost get nicked, you take it for granted you are naturally immortal. The next few times you begin to wonder, and after that you start looking over your shoulder to make sure old Lady Luck is still around. Then, if you're still in one piece, you wonder when she's going to scram to parts unknown. A young guy named Swale came up to us three weeks ago, fresh out from Blighty, and before he really knew what in hell it was all about, he ended up a pile of perforated meat along with seven of his men. Why him? Why them? And when will it be you? That's the sort of question you ask yourself. And, you know, you're in this tiny forgotten corner of Italy that no one really visits and no one's really written about. And you must kind of wonder, what's it all for? And why are you fighting here in this very beautiful part of the world, but so sort of pointless? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. See you in a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Well, I've now climbed up to a place called Castro Pignano, which the Hasty Peas called Castro Pigface. Um, there's a kind of ruined castle on its kind of outermost crag. It's perched really high above the Biferno Valley. Um, and we've just come up a road that I'm pretty sure would have been a, um, a Strada Bianca, a sort of dirt road, not very long ago, but has just been conveniently re and was... Um, was uh, pretty smooth, it has to be said, albeit very narrow. And I'm looking out over over the Biferno Valley, which is just, you know, half a mile in front of me. Dogs barking in the distance, the bells in the church have just been going. Uh, and this is where the Hasty Peas were kind of pulled out of the line once they kind of pushed across the Biferno. Uh, and they've been pushing north over the Biferno River um, with the help of some partisans led by a chap called Giovanni. And at one point... Um, Farley Mowat has been with Giovanni and they've been in a little village and um, there's a signaller that's been pointing to them and suddenly there's a big whoosh and they're just coming up towards this, this signaller in this little village there's a massive whoosh as shell comes in and then um, Mowat wrote one morning oh here we are one morning Giovanni and I were together at the window of a house overlooking the town square when a signaller started to cross it with a message in his hand. There was a tremendous swoosh and a stunning crash as a 15-centimetre shell landed in the middle of the square. As the dust and smoke swirled clear, the signaller emerged in view, standing as if rooted to the spot. Then slowly, slowly, he began to bend backward from the waist. With a soundless gush, his guts spilled from him to drape his legs as if in bloody vermicelli. A shell fragment had virtually cut him in half, leaving only his spine and a handful of skin and muscle linking the two portions of the body. Ugh, yuck. So they're rather relieved when they get pulled out of the line and they come back to Castro Pigface, um, where I'm standing in the little village square now. But, you know, winter is very much coming. It's kind of the end of October, getting into November. The uh, 
the Bufferno waters have risen, washing away Bailey bridges, and winter winter clothing is a bit slow in coming, uh, and it's all just getting a bit miserable. And the Italian campaign is just not going as well as everyone would have hoped. And seeing this landscape, these high hills, these sharp, even the low hills, are, you know, they've got these sort of sharp um, rises, the difficulty of getting through this woods and through these, you know, using these incredibly narrow roads. I mean, all through the Paferno Valley now, there's superb highways with bridges and, you know, all the rest of it, but none of that back in 1943. And it really isn't hard to imagine just how difficult this would have play this would have been to to fight through. It really isn't. Well, we've motored up from the south um, up to the Sangro Valley, and we're at Castel di Sangro, which is just north of the town of Isernia. And I've got to say, um, uh, Dave, my great friend David is with me at the moment, and we're walking up. We've climbed up on a big pinnacle overlooking the town of Castel de Sangro, and this was known as Point 1009, so it was at 1,000 feet, so 300 metres above the town. And we've just parked the car, and we're walking the last bit up to the Castello, the castle that would have stood on the top of this outcrop overlooking, overlooking the Sangro Valley at Castel de Sangro. And I've got to say... I mean, it was quite a walk up here, wasn't it? I mean, quite a drive up here from from where we were on the Beferno. And, you know, what you're thinking is you're going through all these tunnels and you're going through these sort of viaducts, I suppose, aren't they? These sort of, you know, high bridges and high passes, all of which are incredible bits of Italian engineering. But none of that in the war. None of it in 1943. And... You just wonder how on earth they managed to do it, really. Going up all the, I mean, you, you've, I mean, you've known Italy for a long time, David, and, and you would have known it in a time where a lot of roads were still Strada Bianca. And if not mule tracks and cart tracks as well, some of them. Yep. They've been made in uh, asphalted roads too, some of those. But back in 1943, this would have been pretty rudimentary, wouldn't it? Definitely. And you just wonder about going through all this in the driving rain of November. It's November time, basically, that we're talking about. So the bit earlier on, when I was following Farley Mowat, that was kind of October 1943. Then the Hasty Peas were withdrawn, as was the whole of the 1st Canadian Infantry Brigade, were withdrawn for a bit of a rest after all their battles on the Paferno. And the 3rd Infantry Brigade took over. And it's the 3rd Infantry Brigade which are pulling up here. And we're now in Abruzzo. We've left... Molise. Molise. We've left Molise behind, the part of Italy that no one knows. And suddenly we're in a completely different landscape, aren't we? I mean, much higher peaks, the Abruzzo Mountains. Much more wooded. Much more wooded, much greener. I mean, it's sort of... It could almost be whales. Yeah. A slight exaggeration, yeah. but you know what I mean. Yes. And I mean, the, the, we're now looking southwards to the direction towards Isernia from the direction which we've come. And behind us is yet another load of peaks. And it's just, it's absolutely incredible to think how they did it. 
And you can absolutely see why the Germans would have cleared off from the um, plains of Foggia and wanted to come up here. And this is all part of what's known as the Bernhard Line, which is the big defensive position. We're just climbing up the track now, heading up to the castle, which actually looks in pretty good nick. It doesn't look destroyed at all. But up here, this was the 3rd Battalion of our old friends, the 1st Fauschenjäger Division, the German paratroopers. They were dug in here on point 1009. And the, when the, the Canadians were approaching, the 3rd Infantry Brigade was approaching, the Germans didn't do an awful lot of firing at them. So the Canadians thought that it was only very, very lightly held. And as they approached, came down into this valley of the Sangro. And I guess the valley is maybe, what, five miles wide, something like that. Um, when they came in, when they approached Castel de Sangro, it was pouring with rain. It was absolutely filthy, filthy weather. And they thought, okay, well, we won't do the whole kind of waiting for the artillery to come up behind. We'll just crack on and try and take it. And it was the West Nova Scotia Regiment that was given the, the dubious honour of trying to take this, this place. And I should just say that it's, it's like a big sort of domed, craggy rock that just juts above the town. Very dominating. And the plan was to do a night attack. So climb up the lower slopes and assault at 0100 hours, 1am in the morning of the 23rd of November, 1943. But the Fauschenberg had been deceiving them and they'd been deliberately holding back their fire. And when the Canadians cut, came up here, all the machine guns open fire and of course Fauschenjäger have more they have two um, machine guns per section not one so one machine gun per every five men plus mortars and here they were on this crag up here and you can see when you're here I mean it's absolutely clear why it would have been so difficult to prize them off it and unfortunately in the driving rain the Canadians couldn't take it Fortunately, by dawn the following morning, there was a low mist in the valley and that was able to shield them a little bit as they fell back. And of course, they did what the Allies always do. If you can't take it quickly with a light infantry attack, you wait for everyone else to join up, call in the artillery and you pummel it. And on the afternoon of the 24th of November, so the following day, they fired 5,000 rounds of artillery shells on this site in one hour. And then the Nova Scotians attacked again the following day, the 25th of November. And when they got to the top, they discovered that the Fauschenjäger had slipped out overnight. And finally, this troublesome plug of rock was in their hands. And all this was really a diversion to draw German troops away from the Adriatic coast, which is, I don't know, 100 kilometres or something, 60 miles or so, uh, away to the east, um, for which is where Montgomery was planning his main attack. 
And of course, we all know that his memoirs were known from the Al from Alamein to the Sangro. So this is the Sangro, but this is very much a deception move rather than the main assault. But again, you try telling the Nova Scotians that or the men of the 3rd Battalion of the Fauschenjäger Division. Didn't seem like a sideshow to them. What a place. So there's an old tower and there's a lovely sort of square building. And I mean, I've got to say the views are absolutely out of this world. Oh, it's a church, is it? Yeah, okay. So it's the old castle, Castello, and then the, then the church. But the views are just astounding. But again, we've got a little bit of cloud cover now. It's not quite as azure blue as it was. But um, back in November 1943, so just, just over, just under 89 years ago, this was one very, very grim place to be. And everyone was utterly fed up, exhausted, and really getting a very, very bad feeling for the entire Italian campaign. Anyway, next stop is Castel di Mezze, which is where we rejoin the Hasty Peas. Well, we've travelled along the um, Sangro Valley and we're now at a place called Colle di Mezzo. So that roughly translates as, uh, well, precisely translates as the hill in the middle. But we're on a kind of town which is high up, um, perched on a crag overlooking the Sangro, overlooking the Sangro Valley. We're in the kind of, there's a church on my right, um, mountains on my left. There's an open cafe where we've just paused for a quick um, cafe. And there's a town hall in front of us, a municipi municipio and all the old all the men of the village are out and you can probably hear them chuntering away and chattering away uh not a lady in sight nessuna donne anyway um the reason we're here is because this is actually where this is where eighth indian division were emerging out of the hills behind me i mean it's just it's really hard to get your head around how they were operating in these mountains with these narrow mill tracks and what have you. Meanwhile, Farley Mowat was resting in Castro Pigface and feeling, spending most of his time feeling really, really cold. And, and at this point, he wrote a letter to a friend back in England and he wrote, I hate to disillusion you about the climate, but it must be the worst in the whole bloody world. It either burns your balls off you in summer or freezes them off in winter. In between, it rots them off with endless rains. The only time I'm comfortable is in my sleeping bag, wearing woolen battle dress and burrowed under half a dozen extra blankets. That's when we're in billets, of course, such as the cellar I'm now sharing with my Batman and sometimes a pig or two that wanders in and out of the stormy night. For most of the time, recently, we've been hiking in the mountains with only a cellophane gas cape to keep the elements at bay. The first travel agent I see back at home with a poster of sunny Italy in his window is going to get a big damn rock right through the glass. It's, um, it's a lovely day um, here, though, and um, I'm looking at the church... Again, this is perched right at the end of this sort of little promontory of rock. Lots of terracotta tiles. Um, they've got stones on top of the tiles to sort of keep them, keep the tiles in place when the wind gets up. Um, lots of little narrow alleyways and steps. And um, it's your sort of classic little Italian hilltop town, really, village. Um, 
But out of this, the Eighth Indian Division were sort of debouching out of the out of the mountains and coming down into the Sangro Valley. What they must have thought of it. I mean, you just imagine all those Indian battalions having come all the way from India over to here in the rain and misery of the winter of 1943-44. Just think, they must have been thinking to themselves, what on earth are we doing here? It's extraordinary, really. So we've now driven along the Sangro Valley. Um, and fascinating that's been too. But today I've been on the trail of Farley Mowat and the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment. And here I am overlooking the River Morrow. And the Hasty Peas have been at Castro Pigface for kind of much of November. But then on the 25th of November, Mowat goes with Major Burke Kennedy, who is acting uh, battalion commander, to go to a divisional briefing at Campo Basso. And basically, they're going to they're gonna be moved up to um, the Morro front to try and attack across the Morro and up and take Ortona. And at the briefing, they're told that the objective... And, and this is at Campo Basso, back in, you know, back in Molise. They're told that the, uh, the objective remains Rome, um, even though they're on the other side of the, of the country. And... They're told that they're going to smash across the Sangro, gallop up the coast of Biscara, and then make a left hook into the mountains and pounce on Rome for the east. And that was very much Montgomery's plan. Of course, it didn't kind of work out like that. Um, but as um, as Mowat records, he says, you know, there are some phrases which can chill the veteran soldier's blood more effectively than any polar blizzard, and spearhead the advance is one such. And he and Kennedy, as they're driving back from Campo Basso to Castro Pigface, through driving sleet, neither of them wants to say an awful lot because there's nothing to say except that kind of sort of terrible, kind of heavy, dull weight in your heart that you know you're going to be in really, really bad danger and that you're just about to embark on an incredibly tough and difficult battle in which a number of guys are just not going to make it through. And you're always wondering with every single battle whether the next one is going to be the last one, and, and understandably so. And when they do get up here, they, they're taking over from positions of the 78th Division, which includes the Irish Brigade, and this huge convoy kind of sort of heading up towards the coast, sort of incredibly slowly through these narrow roads and most of which don't have tarmac on or anything like that, through the rain and, and the freezing conditions. And, you know, having driven around in my bed for it a little bit, um, it's fine in summer, but it's not really what you want in, in, in winter um, when temperatures are dropping, that's for sure. And when they reach the uh, 78th Division, they're talking to the kind of um, one of the liaison officers, and he says, we've had 500 casualties crossing this one flaming river. That's the Sangro. And for what? Haven't any of the high mucky mucks looked at the frigging maps? There'll be half a dozen sangros before we get to Pescara, if we get to Pescara. Thank God you're taking over, Canada. We've had this show. So, of course, you know, the mood is not great. Um, and then they finally get to their jump-off positions overlooking the Morrow. Uh, and that's where I am now. And, oh, God, I mean, it is amazing how different it is from what I'd imagined, because... It's a hell of a valley. I would say it's about three quarters of a mile wide, something like that. 
maybe half a mile to three quarters of a mile wide. It's absolutely lined with vineyards and olive groves. And you can't see the Morrow itself. That's deep in some sort of tree-lined bottom of the valley. But it's deep. You know, it's, it's, it's several, it's a number of hundreds of feet below the kind of plateau above it. Um, it's beautiful, really, really stunning, particularly now in, in October with the kind of autumnal colours. Um, lots of people going around picking grapes at the moment and the olive trees are looking, they're looking sort of fat with olives and the branches all low with the weight of these thick black olives. But as a, as a place across which to attack, that is something that would absolutely chill the heart. Anyway, I'm going to leave the hasty peas now. Um, but tomorrow it's time to study the Battle of Ortona. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to it, I have to say. Anyway, cheerio for now. I hope you've enjoyed this one. <laughs>